Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. This episode is also brought to you by Brave, the new web browser by the inventor of JavaScript. When was the last time you seriously thought about your browser? Many of us downloaded Chrome without even thinking about it, but it's time to upgrade to something way faster, totally private, that actually pays you for browsing. That's why Brave is the new browser that everyone is switching to. Brave is three times faster than Chrome because it takes Chrome's engine and rips out all of Google's spyware while blocking ads and trackers right out of the box. YouTube ads too. So it works just like Chrome, except it's lighter and faster. Here's the cool part. If you choose to enable ads that you control, Brave actually pays you for any ad that you happen to see. You can then take your earnings and cash them out, tip them to your favorite websites and creators, or redeem rewards. It's like Air Miles, but just for browsing the web as you usually do. No other browser does this, and no other browser pays you. And no, Brave doesn't collect your data and sell it. It keeps everything local to your device. Brave is still a bit of an industry secret among lead tech users and privacy advocates, despite growing to over 22 million users in a very short period of time. You can be ahead of the curve, too. It's still early. Switching to Brave is super easy and quick. It lets you import your bookmarks, history, and replicate your entire workspace in less than 60 seconds. It's free, and all your Chrome extensions work in Brave, too. So listeners of the podcast, switch to Brave today. You can go to brave.com slash likeville and switch now. By downloading and using Brave, you're also helping support the Likeville podcast. Brave is available for your laptop, iOS, and Android. It's time to upgrade to the next generation of browsers with Brave. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, I have the great honor of talking to novelist Alice Adams about uh, her novel, Invincible Summer. Welcome, Alice. Hi, John. Good to speak to you. Yeah. So this is a, a wonderful, wonderful novel. It's, um, I mean, it does, it, it seems to me it does all the things that the novel form, like genre does uh, what at its best. So you tell the truth. Um, the characters are all very, very believable. I, I feel like, like I was saying to you, we were messaging back and forth over the last few weeks. Like, I know all these people. <laughs> like, these people are all kind of like a, a composite of different people uh, that I've known in my life, or or some version of myself, or my wife, or some of our friends. It's just you. You get all the details right, and then um, and then you create this world. And it's just, it's just amazing. I mean, what inspired you to, to write this? I mean, have you always wanted to write a novel or did you just, like, what was it? Well, wow. Okay. There's, yeah, the the answer to that question is quite a big answer, but first of all, that's amazing to hear. Thank you. Um, You know, that words of praise are like, raindrops on the parched desert of the writer's soul so thank you <laughs> really, great to hear. really encouraging as I try and write the next one what made me write it well 
I, I always loved reading. So did I always want to write a novel? It wasn't something that I spent an enormous amount of time thinking about when I was young, but I always loved books. And I think every writer is a reader. So first and foremost, that was my, that was my great love uh, um, during my childhood. It was my form of escapism. But I was always pretty savvy about the chances of getting published and the, the chances of making a living as a novelist, um, you know, because it's, it's a kind of a competitive area and there's a lot of people out there writing for a long time and not getting published. And I was one of them, by the way. So what, so this wasn't the first novel I wrote. It was my first published novel. But like most writers who are willing to be honest about it, I had a novel that I'd written before that, which was unpublished um, and still have tucked away somewhere. But so it wasn't, I hadn't grown up going, wow, I want to be a novelist. I'd grown up going, wow, I love reading books. And actually my first career was in banking. I was a data analyst. And um, that was really interesting. And it took up a lot of my time. But I think about probably when I was in sort of my mid twenties, I just started being overwhelmed by an urge to write. And I think a lot of people who are writers write not because they make conscious decisions to do it, but because it's kind of almost a compulsion. <laughs> so I found myself just increasingly writing and burning through my free time in that way. Um, but I was working in quite a stressful job that didn't allow that much time for things like writing. So I took a, I took nine months out to do a master's in creative writing, and that was really a cover story, right? That was that was a cover <laughs> for leaving my job, doing this insane thing of leaving my banking job and spending nine months writing a novel. And I went and did a master's in Manchester. I'm based in the UK. I live in London um, because Martin Amis, who's a novelist you may have heard of, was teaching on the course, and you know I loved his work at the time, um, and wrote a novel. And that novel was probably a much more literary affair, much more self-conscious affair as first novels so often are. And that novel didn't get published. Um, but then, so this was my second novel I wrote. And what inspired me to write it? Well, I suppose my life kind of, but in, in many ways, it just, it remains mysterious to me. This is, this is quite a light-hearted novel, mostly, although it does touch on some serious subjects. and. In many ways, I wrote it to amuse myself, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. Maybe this is just projection on my part. Um, but I did detect a, a sense of one of the emotional notes that, that runs through the novel is, is nostalgia. Yeah, because you know, and when I talk to, I'm, I'm 46, and when I talk to my friends who are my age that I grew up with people who are now in their forties. Um, and even people sort of, I would say from kind of mid thirties to early fifties when I uh, talk to, and I ask people, um, you know, what do you, or they volunteer it, right? What do you miss most about your twenties uh, and your, your late teens and your twenties? It's interesting because the vast majority of people, they don't tell me, their their first answer is not oh I miss kind of sexual freedom and like you know dating like lots of people and being free of responsibilities and things like that. The number one thing that people tell me most of the time is I miss friendship. I miss having uh, friends, and that's because that is just one of these things that our culture for for I mean a lot of reasons that. Uh, 
I mean, that's a whole other discussion, but our, our friendship, our culture doesn't prioritize friendship at all. Like if you say I need to take time off work because my spouse is sick and I have to take care of him or her, or my kid is sick or uh, those answers, you know, probably people would nod their head and say, oh, okay, well, you got to do what you got to do. Um, if you say like, I need to take time off to take care of my best friend, people are going to look at you like you've got two heads. It's, it's just, it's not a priority. Like time you spend with friends in middle age is time that you are stealing from your kids, from your spouse or from your job. And so, I mean, one of the things I, I felt this is just these people and your these characters in your novel, they, they have the, these kind of amazing friendships, right? I mean, is that, is that just totally projection on my part or? No, it's not. It's not projection. It's an interesting way to think about it because it wasn't how I was thinking about it while I was writing it. But I think you're right uh, that that yeah, one of the things that changes because the novel spans twenty years and it's in large part a novel about the way that life changes between the age the ages of twenty and forty or the eighteen and thirty eight or whatever. Um, and yeah, one of the big changes is that the younger you are, the more you have those vast expanses of time that you can just spend hanging out with your friends and, you know, drinking and laughing and teasing each other. You know, it's a form of play in the way that children play. It's, it's just a sort of slightly evolved version of that, I think. And I think that's something that you're right, does in the natural course of things tail off as you get older and you get more responsibilities. And you see that happening over the course of the novel as well and causing some tensions between us. So, I think it is, and, and it's. I think one of the things about it, about the fact that we have that less of that time for friendship, is we have less time to kind of enter into each other and really get to know each other well. So it was interesting that you said, wow, you know, I know all these people. I really relate to these characters. And that was quite funny to me when this novel got published, um, that this was something I wrote, you know, in sitting in Starbucks in afternoons to explain <laughs> myself. How many people came to me or, you know, wrote me messages or came to me at readings or whatever and said, I, you know, I know these people or I married my Lucian or, oh my God, I'm a <laughs> or, wow, you know, the Benedict is my best friend or, the, or those sorts of things. And I didn't, and genuinely when I was writing, I didn't realise how recognisable those people those characters were going to be. I mean, they felt very recognisable to me because I lived with them rattling around my head for about two or three years while I was writing the novel. But I didn't know, I didn't know that that was going to be universal, that people would feel like that. And it genuinely surprised me um, and heartened me because it made me realise how universal a lot of our experiences are. And I take quite a lot of comfort for that. And so do the characters in the book at the end. Um, but yeah, it is. It is in large part a book about friendship and in many ways, I think friendship is almost, I, I don't want to say a consolation because it feels like I'm trivialising, like I'm saying it is, it is a lower status than other, relate, other types of relationships. But I think in the novel, the characters are the relationships, as for so many of us in real life, aren't straightforward, right? So the family relationships are not necessarily straightforward, be it alcoholic parents or you know dead parents or lack of siblings or complicated relationships with siblings and all of that and their romantic relationships are also not straightforward um there's a few lucky people for whom that is true but there's also an enormous number of people in the world for whom 
that that isn't true. So I think one of the themes of the book was the way that friendship is important. It is important as a, not as a substitute for those relationships, but it's also some, you know, part of the life, part of a well-rounded life. And we really lionize, you know, romantic relationships and romantic relationships can be amazing. Um, but, and as you say, they're recognized. If you say I'm taking time off work to look after my sick partner, then everyone's sort of understanding of that. Whereas actually probably increasingly, because we do live in increasingly fragmented societies, you know, that's evident in the decline of marriage. If you look, actually look at the data, bear in mind, first and foremost, I was a data analyst. Um, so yeah, you know, just just about the role that friendship can play in our lives and how unrecognised it is and how much strength we can draw of that, but also equally how complicated it can be. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a book, the only book, I, I've been teaching a class for years called Love and Friendship, and I've, so I've, I've read up a lot on this stuff, and the only book that I've seen that really tries to make sense of what's happening with friendship. I mean, it doesn't do it very well, but it, it, it asks all the right questions. It's by this British philosopher named Mark Vernon. And it's called um, the, well, it was originally published as The Philosophy of Friendship. And then he, he um, came out with a new edition of it and called it The Meaning of Friendship. I don't know why he did that. Maybe he thought philosophy scared people off. But, but anyway, in that book, he has this, this wonderful chapter, which I went back and read after I finished your novel the first time, because your, your novel really made me think about it. And he said, uh, he said what, what gay male culture can teach us all uh, the 21st century about friendship? And he talked about how uh, gay men for a long time, uh, had, because they were often ostracized from their families and because they had you know, complicated family, their friends became their family. And so they needed to sort of rely on friends much more heavily and prioritize friends more. But then they also had to work out the complicated erotic dynamics of that. So you probably kind of slept with some of your friends at some point in the past and you have to, you know, smooth that over and be okay with it and it not be weird, you know, like, and so it seems like your characters, although they're, you know, they're straight characters, they, they have um, this really tight bond of friendship, which also you know, exactly like uh, Mark Fernan says, like they, they smooth over those erotic difficulties and it's, uh, it's just really nice. I mean, I, I'm, I, I love that. <laughs> what I also like, and I, I suspect that this is part of the reason why publishers jumped on it, on your manuscript, is there's been this tendency in, uh, in fiction. I, if I had to sort of put a, a start date on it, I think I would say it maybe you could say for argument's sake that it started with James Joyce's uh, Portrait of the Artist as, as a Young Man. There's been this tendency where increasingly writers, um, the main story in, in every, uh, everything that writers do or almost everything is a writer. Like the main character is a writer, like the main character. Yeah. <laughs> and that yeah. just gets so boring. And once you notice it, you realize so many movies we watched when we were kids, like, especially like in the eighties, seventies and novels, the main character is surprise, surprise, a writer, you know, and has all of the, and so I think it's just, it's so refreshing when you read, um, you know, I think this is part of the reason why people love Tom Wolfe so much, you know, but like 
when you read something where the main character is not a moody, introverted writer who's sitting in the corner and feeling insecure, it's like, I've heard this story so many times. Like, tell me a story about somebody who is working as a, you know, in banking. Tell me a story about a drug dealer who's also a DJ, you know, tell me a story at least about a, a failing artist, you know, <laughs> or whatever. like, and so you, you kind of bring in these characters that, um, especially Eva, uh, that people just don't, they very rarely hear stories told from somebody like that's perspective, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And it's funny because it really relates to well, a couple of things about the book. The first is that, yeah, I wrote about the, the, the protagonist, Eva, the mayor, probably the main of the four characters, works in banking. And I worked in banking. One of the things that I'm going to have engraved on my gravestone, actually, is it's not an autobiography because I can't get anyone to believe that. Um, but really? But obviously, obviously, I used milieus with which I was familiar. <laughs> you know, because sure. I write about <clears throat> write about write about what you know. Yeah, write about what you know. But, you know, those are the things that you can write about with with very similitude. Um, so yeah, so I and, and during my years in banking, although I thought the work was very interesting, there was always a bit of me that was looking at sort of people I knew who were working in areas like publishing and going, did I do the right thing? Has my life taken the wrong course? You know, should I have, like, my first love in many ways is books and writing. Um, should I, have I done the wrong thing? Should I have tried to go into journalism? Should I have tried to go into publishing? Something like that. And, th- and this kind of, that kind of answered that question for me because what it did was what it was give me something to write about that no one else was really writing about or not that much. Um, so it sort of, uh, that, that was a real sort of doubt in my mind for a while during my 20s. And I, ultimately, I really feel like, no, actually, it was a great thing to go out and do something entirely different. And then I didn't end up being a writer writing about writers writing, <laughs> which <laughs> you're completely right. You're like, you're so right. So many of us do. And I've been guilty of it, right? I'm laughing because I've done that. Like I have done that as well. We've all done it. Um, and, you know, and it's so tempting. And of course it is, you know, we all try and write, write what we know. And that's what we're told in creative writing classes as well. Well, I don't, you know, some of us, some of us, I, I teach creative writing classes as well. So on the side, um, and I don't necessarily say that, but you do, you have to write about the milieus with which you're familiar. Um, so yeah, you know, it was just, it wasn't a conscious decision. So I'm not, a, so writers are split into conscious and unconscious plotters. That is, this is one of those kind of false dichotomies that we use when, we're, when we teach creative writing, but people who actually plan what they're going to write and people who don't plan what they're going to write. I'm an unconscious plotter. I don't plan what I'm going to write. So bearing in mind that I was a data analyst and I'm quite, you know, meticulous and detail orientated. And, you know, if you're coding, you can't put a single comma in the wrong place and all of that sort of thing. It kind of came as a surprise to me that I wasn't that sort of writer. It revealed something to me about my own personality that I didn't know, um, which is that as a writer, I'm just absolutely chaotic. So when I plugged into my subconscious and sat down and just blurted down onto the screen what, what my subconscious apparently wanted to say, that was what came out. Um, so it wasn't a decision, but I'm glad that I had that experience and insight because a lot of, pe- a lot of feedback I've got, so people 
you know, found it really entertaining and interesting to read about banking, you know, something they hadn't read about it before. I mean, goodness, I'm perfectly used to people's eyes glazing over at parties <laughs> talk about data analysis. But um, but yeah, so I think I think that turned out to be an advantage and it was something that I that I would sort of worried about back in the day. Well, I liked it. I, I loved that stuff. I, lo- I loved all of the, because I just, I really like it in uh, in any kind of writing, you know, nonfiction writing, fiction. I love it when people sort of get into the weeds and really sort of describe in detail something about the world. I just, that's, that for me is, um, you know, because I, I, I guess I've just been so overdosed with modernism for my life where everybody's just talking about their inner states and their their moods and stuff like that and you know that can be very interesting especially like in the hands of somebody like you know the poet we both love tony hoagland Mm. Uh, but it is also nice when somebody sort of lets the world in in all of its uh, manifold detail it just feels like like you're showing the world a kind of respect rather than seeing it all as a kind of projection of your mind and your moods, you know, in this really narcissistic way. I mean, I think like when I hear you say, and it's, it's sad, I'm not surprised, but when I hear you say that everybody thinks you're Eva, that just, that just further drives home uh, Christopher Latch's point in the culture of narcissism, that we live in such a narcissistic age that people just can't understand how you could, uh, create a character out of imagination, <laughs> like out of like what you know in imagination. They automatically assume, you know, that you know Shakespeare must be Hamlet or you know somebody Falstaff. I don't know, but uh, yeah, it's kind of a, a failure of the imagination right there. But uh, there's there's one, there's a couple of passages I wanted to specifically get get your uh, exposit. There's one here which I absolutely adored. I have it like like written out on a piece of paper on the wall right now. But uh, it's we all think we're unique snowflakes, but we're not really. You remember how we thought we were so different when we were young, like we were on the fringes of society because we dyed our hair and did drugs at parties. Christ, we'd have loved it then if we knew how like everyone else we are, how people are just the same the world over funny because it feels rather comforting now i feel sort of grounded by it (laughs) this is one of the like most wise wise kind of statements in the i mean did is is that just basically um, a character talking in a novel or is that something that you actually would uh subscribe to i i mean i think i think the answer is is both um yeah, it's it's funny because they would have loathed it at the time. They would have hated it, and then you know, as they as they grow older, that becomes kind of comforting. Yeah, it's it's what it's tied to what what you were saying before, actually, in that people can't imagine that characters are invented and that novels are fictional and an act of imagination, and that is true. And I have very much asserted that it's not an autobiography. You know, this isn't my life story, but at the same time, characters are very often written from facets of your own personality so i say that that novel is from the point of view of four different main characters and 
uh, although they're very different and two of them are male and they have very different backgrounds and all of that sort of thing, they are to a degree each, you know, some sort of manifestation of a facet of my own personality. And so, yeah, I, I relate to that and it's the sort of voice that I put into the, into the mouth of the character. So, I think, you know, I was the same as these characters were to a degree um, when I was younger. And you think that your own, and I'm, I think I'm paraphrasing another writer here, actually, James Baldwin, I'm going to paraphrase him. Yeah, and, it, and he says, you think that your own suffering and alienation is unparalleled in the history of the world. And then you read, you pick up a book and you read Tolstoy or Dostoevsky, I think he said, and you discover that some guy in Russia a hundred years earlier was thinking and feeling the same way. And suddenly <laughs> you realise that you're, you know, you're, you ha you're not this kind of unique person and your suffering is not unique and you are not uniquely alienated and all of those sorts of things. Actually, you are very much connected to the rest of humanity um, in this way. And that's one of the real joys of books and one of the things that I've always loved about them. Yeah, it is, it is a really kind of wonderful thing because you, you have, um, you, know, you you change so dramatically in like from about sort of puberty until maybe late teens, and you're at that point you're trying to sort of find yourself, and that's kind of your main purpose. And right, and there's a, we have a lot of novels about coming of age and finding yourself, and but then there's this next period, which often is is sort of like uh, my wife was saying this. We were talking about your novel, and she said, you know, the the period that that Alice covers is this period of life that often is sort of skipped over, which is the, the period where you, uh, you find other people, right? So you find yourself, but then you find other people. So you realize the, the commonality of, you know, how you're actually so much like everybody else. And that, that can be, uh, that can be very comforting for some people for, but if you've been brought up as, as we were, if you've been brought up with this sort of cult of authenticity and this whole idea of like how you have to be original and you have to be completely, you know, sui generis and stuff like that, it, it can be like a bitter pill to swallow to realize that you're kind of ordinary. <laughs> I mean, if you've, if you've felt alienated by, um, by your loneliness because you struggled with depression or anxiety or something like that, then uh, discovering your own ordinariness can be incredibly comforting. But if you've worn your, uh, your specialness as a kind of a badge, then realizing that can be so difficult. <laughs> and I think that's what, you know, one of your characters, uh, you know, she very much has to deal with that, but she thought of herself as this special special snowflake this artist and this like she was the life of every party and and suddenly she's realizing <laughs> this is just this, you know, very very typical right but uh yeah it's uh and the also just go back to something you said about you mentioning baldwin and tolstoy and dostoevsky i was you know the second time i read your novel i was trying to sort of reverse engineer your process in my head and i cuz usually i i feel like i can sort of reverse engineer usually how you know like the worst kind of um very didactic writers for instance like you can you can see that they basically wanted to have a couple of speeches, you know, Anne Rand is like this. They wrote a couple of speeches and then they sort of wrote a novel around those speeches. 
almost like an infomercial or a, mm-hmm. you know, where you trying to like sell, sell something. Right. Uh, there's that kind. And then there's uh, people who came up with the plot and then the characters are just like an afterthought. Your, yours, it felt like that you were doing something much more like uh, Tolstoy's process, which is he would um, invent these characters and then he would just like really, really think heavily about characterization. And he would think, okay, if somebody had this particular virtue dialed up to, let's say, like an 8.5, what vices are going to be just, you know, complementary that are, like somebody with those strengths is going to have these weaknesses. Somebody with these weaknesses is going to have those strengths. And then would just kind of calibrate that really, really well so that these were characters that would just ring true to people. Because you, because that's very often like when a character has certain strengths um, and then they, they don't have certain corresponding weaknesses, something just rings hollow and you're like, oh, that's not, but your characters, they all, ring true in this uh, and i'm wondering like you know is is that your process do you, do you sort of start off with the characters and then just sort of let the story well obviously this is what's going to happen like what how do you i guess do you, do you have like a story in mind or do you have characters in mind um well i mean if i have to choose between the two i would say characters but they come in lockstep in many ways um so yeah i get your point about didactic novels and often you can read a novel and you can and like you say you can go back and unpick it and see how it's put together you can take it apart and see how it works like a clock or something like that um and those do tend to be the didactic novels. You know what the, set, what the central point is that the author's trying to make. And then you can look at, well, how do they get there? Because they knew they clearly knew their end point when they started. To me, that's a flaw in a novel. Or maybe that's a novel succeeding on its own terms, but it's not the kind of novel that I personally like to read. Um, so I'm not... First of all, I think reading should be enjoyable. So I'm not somebody who really reads for medicine. I've never particularly studied literature. (laughs) I've never studied literature and spent long periods writing essays about it. So, you know, books to me are a pleasure. I don't don't think I'm soiling them by saying that I view them as entertainment. I actually think that's quite quite a, a good thing for them to be. Um, so I'm not I'm not looking when I read a novel to be convinced by into some sort of different political worldview or something like that. So while my novel does have some sections that you could arguably say are political, I never set out to say, well, this is, you know, I am this category of person in my political worldview and I want to convince other people to be that way. That wasn't where it was coming from at all. Um, if if there was a central message that could be classed as political that message is probably just that it's complicated and that there are (laughs) sides to most questions so yeah I'm really glad to hear that you didn't feel like you could put take take my novel apart like that because that wasn't how it was written and it wasn't I understand what you mean about yeah sometimes you can see that there's a a couple of central speeches and then the rest of the novel hangs off that um 
and I didn't write it like that at all. So again, you know, God, I don't want to throw in too many kind of creative writing teacher things here, but they say kill your darlings, right? Kill your darlings <laughs> is, is kind of that. It's where you take those two scenes that you wrote that you think are beautiful and you've got them words perfect and they're so original and they express the contents of your soul, but they don't actually fit in with the damn novel. Um, and you have to be willing to take them out. So that's that's something that's part of the writer's process. I was really lucky to have really good ed- editors who worked who worked kind of in tandem in the UK and the US because it's quite hard being edited in two locations at the same time with two different editors. But fortunately, I had editors who'd worked on other books at the same time before, and and they were ruthless. You know, they told me <laughs> when something had to go, and they were great in that they gave. They always said that I had the final decision, but they were so so good so experienced um I had just uh, Francesca at Picador in the UK and um, Judy and Amanda at Little Brown in the US uh, that every time you know so you, so you bridle a bit when they come back and say oh you know well I can see how that's a good scene standalone but actually it just doesn't work in the context of the book do you want to think about taking it out and of course you're like oh, oh you know my wonderful scene that I loved but you go away and think about it for a few days and you're like wow no you're completely right you know it's going to be a better reading experience without that so that's that's part of the process but yeah the book wasn't written didactically didactically at all so I'm really glad if it didn't come across like that no it really didn't I mean for me the the, the paradigm for that that's sort of the perfect example of that is not really uh, and Rand it would be Emile Zola Right, like Emile Zola, his novels are, they feel like, uh, you know, the medicine that we give to little kids that's sugar-coated so that it goes down smoothly. He has mm-hmm. like a, basically a socialist message that is wrapped in candy <laughs> like, so that you, so the story and the characters are all just, uh, it's almost like reading like the Pilgrim's Progress or some sort of Christian allegory. Like it's, it's very much trying to lead you to a particular Inclusion, but it ends up as soon as you realize that it's not that enjoyable anymore because you just feel like somebody's yelling at you, preaching at you, or manipulating you in some way, and it's uh, it's not it's not fun. Uh, but you, um, there's another passage that uh, definitely I want our read our listeners to go and right away go out and buy this novel. Um, it's <laughs> Right, it's near the beginning of the novel where I, I just absolutely adored this. Said, Eva was beginning to understand that half of being successful was just staying in the game longer than anyone else. The great surprise of the adult world had been that no one really knew what they were doing, and especially not the people who exuded impenetrable confidence. The first year in the job had been soul crushing. Every time she'd asked a question, she'd found that she didn't understand the answer. At first, she assumed that this was because she was failing to grasp things that everyone else just magically understood. But lately, she'd begun to realize that the reason her questions were often glossed over was that the people around her didn't actually know the answers. Nobody really knew what they were doing. This was an epiphany that had scared the bejesus out of her, but had also expanded her confidence tenfold. Because if the big beasts of the markets didn't have all the answers then if she could make it her business to be the one who did, she would surely be ahead of the game. Uh, it's, just, it's just a wonderful passage. I mean, that's, that is an experience that I, I know 
so many people, especially uh, my female friends, have told me they had this real sort of imposter complex in you know whatever field they went into at first and felt like, you know, I'm going to be figured out. And then at a certain point, you, uh, you recognize that you know, nobody, really, <laughs> nobody really knows what they're doing. I mean, do you think it's the same thing in, in writing as well that... Well, you took a creative writing class, so I guess you believe some people know what they're doing. But, um, well, okay, so okay, I'm going to put my hands up and say that bit kind of is autobiographical. That is almost me speaking because that's very much what happened to me at the beginning of my career in banking. Uh, and by the way, I wasn't a derivatives trader; I was a back office analyst, so I was I was doing something entirely different. I know that that's a fine distinction to people who don't necessarily work in banking but but it's a significant it's a huge distinction Um, (laughs) one uh, is a quant a mathematician a quant and the other is not (laughs) so so but nevertheless yeah that particular it's funny to hear that you've heard that from other people because I I wasn't particularly aware that that was a very universal thing are they thinking about it it doesn't surprise me but yeah you know my first I remember my first couple of years of just asking questions and people sort of giving me these answers that I didn't understand and and being like well is this just me like that doesn't make sense or did did you answer my question or did you answer some completely different question I hadn't asked and all of that so it was it was an epiphany to realize just how many people were bullshitting um and that took me a while to figure out. And so it was, it was a relief to realise it as well. Um, so, sorry, you're going to have to remind me, what was the actual question there? No, I, just, I was just saying that, do you think that it's the same um, in writing as well, that people uh, who sort of talk about, uh, talk about kind of writing don't know what they're talking about either, right? Because I think that statement, Eva's statement right there, uh, that is people people come to that epiphany in lots of different fields. What amazes me is that i've I've met some people who especially people who stay in school just like nonstop and they go directly you know kind of like benedict i guess uh, your character benedict but mm-hmm. but yeah. he he's not he's not like that but I've known a, like a fair number of people who just um never took a break you know they've basically been getting like a's and you know getting gold stars their whole life from the time that they were five years old and they've they never stopped going to school they went from undergrad to master's to phd to like and for some reason a lot of those people they 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 just don't seem to have had that epiphany like they still have a major imposter complex and they um, they feel like okay, everybody else or almost everybody else understands what's going on here, and I don't. Right? But I, I guess my my question is: Do you think that this is in writing? This is the case as well, or do you, do you think people who are in that field know what they're doing? Um, I think it can be. So I think so. You've di- you've drawn the distinction between academia and physics, right? Because in the novel. Benedict is, you know, does his PhD in physics and then goes to work in a research field, um, albeit at CERN, and then yeah, and then comes back. So he does, so he does stay within that very academic world. And actually, he's, you know, and my familiarity with that world comes from my my sister, who's a physicist, who you know did her PhD at the same institution as Benedict and all of that sort of thing. Um, And I think, but. 
but is by no means the kind of person you're describing, by the way. I should <laughs> a disclaimer before I, you know, get lynched at the <laughs> Christmas dinner or whatever. Um, I think <laughs> the difference is between people who've had to test themselves in the real world and people who haven't had to test themselves in the real world or people who've watched the people around them doing that. Um, because it's because it's when ideas collide with reality. So when you see things with real world outcomes succeed or fail for yourself or for other people, then you, you know, that's, that's a kind of objective measure of something. Whereas if you live in academia your whole life, then everything becomes very abstract and there's no, well, how do I tell whether this idea has succeeded or failed? Well, you know, (laughs) you don't, you don't have a marketplace that you take it to almost, or the marketplace is peer review in academic journals or something like that, which all have their own kind of terms. And it may not be a reflection of the strength of your work. It may just be a reflection of what's fashionable or acceptable in your field at that time, particularly in, uh, I suppose, the, the kind of the the less the, the I suppose the sort of social sciences liberal arts subjects not you know that I, that I absolutely don't have any contempt for I'm a writer but at the same time if you, when it's physics or it's maths you're right or wrong um, less so if it's social sciences so it does it apply to writing to a degree it does because there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people writing and feeling bad about the quality of their writing or whether they do or don't get published. And I deal with, so when I, when I teach creative writing courses and people discuss that, I tend to say that writing is something you should choose to do because you're able to enjoy the process. Or even if you don't enjoy it, you feel like it enriches your life in some way because publica- publication is an objective marketplace that you can take your writing to but it's not necessarily telling you whether your writing is good or not in the sense that you might want to know whether it's good or not so it's but so more than anything it's telling you a whether you you know sent it to enough people because most people are not going to like what you do most things are not going to resonate with most people um but also it's it's even more so, it's a judge of what's commercial. And if you're not trying to write commercial fiction, then that isn't the right thing to be measuring yourself by. Yeah. It's interesting what you, what you said uh, just before. It, it very much brings to mind um, Eric Weinstein. He has, uh, Weinstein, he has this wonderful expression he had on his podcast where he talks about confronting the unforgiving. And he said, people who've worked in fields, it could be, it could be anything, everything from special forces, you know, guys who are jumping out of helicopters with guns and stuff like that, to um, to people like Eva who are making decisions that could, uh, you know, basically tank tank their career or you know remove all of the profits for the whole year, <laughs> like in one one kind of day sort of thing. People who are con- confronting the the unforgiving is. He says it's it's something where you can't explain it away. You can't use rhetoric or you can't kind of talk away that problem. Like you either it either worked um, or or it didn't, right? Which is uh, there's a whole book on this. It's um, 
called the Shop Class as Soulcraft. I'm blanking on the name of it. Matthew, uh, I'm forgetting his name, but uh, it's a really, really good book. And he talks about um, going all the way through uh, school, getting like a PhD in philosophy from University of Chicago. He gets his tenure track position at a, at a university, like, you know, his dream job. And then he just, he just can't stand it. He can't stand being a professor. So he drops out of, uh, he, he resigns from his tenured, uh, position and he becomes a motorcycle mechanic. And he wrote, he wrote this whole book about, uh, the, like the difference between jobs that are very results oriented and how people interact with each other. And he, he's like, you know, if you're in, like an office job, promotions, raises, uh, and stuff like that. A lot of it is basically just a kind of, like you said, it's like a popularity contest. And it's just, it's basically how much can you make people around you like, like you or how much can you suck up to your boss or can you, right. And the people, it's not really, it's not really grounded in any kind of reality. Whereas being a motorcycle mechanic, um, the proof that you fixed the engine is that it starts and it runs properly. And if it doesn't, you can't explain that away. You can't just like, like you clearly failed and then you have to make yourself vulnerable and you have to ask people around you for help. And can you show me how to do this? Right. And it's, uh, yeah, it is a very, very different, uh, different experience. I mean, uh, I mean the, the kind of jobs, the kind of job you did in your twenties, I'm sure you, <laughs> I'm sure you encountered that all the time. Like where there's mistakes that if you make them, you can't, you know, you can't explain it away, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's. Uh, uh, am I allowed to use the word character building? Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think, sure. I think that is the underlying is that you can't explain things away, and I think it's good for the soul to do some some of those sorts of jobs and to have those brushes with reality because it teaches you humility and it teaches you a, a certain type of sort of practical and intellectual humility you learn you can see and everyone else can see when you got something wrong and that and that's pretty good I think that's one of the most important things you can learn is that you're deeply deeply fallible and I had I had a real laugh the other day on social media when I, I I'm not going to go into the detail of whatever kind of contentious <laughs> contemporary issue it was but when I just admitted I did a, a, a post on social media and said I thought I, I was wrong about this I think I was wrong about this subsequent events have made me change my mind I've seen some new data and I think I, I think that I posted it something I posted about six months ago I think I was wrong about that and for some reason everyone went oh my god you know this is so strange we've never seen anyone admit they were on social media before and it just it just made me laugh as I was uh, you know misquoting somebody else well, what do you do when the information changes right um so I I think the that test bed, you know, testing yourself in reality, whether it's being a motor mechanic and if you don't get it right, the bike doesn't go or other things where you actually have to make things work. It's just, is really good for you in that sense, just getting used to admitting that you're wrong about something. And I think those jobs and lives where, as you say, your mistakes can be explained away and their popularity contests and you just have to convince people to like you and have to give you 
your next bonus or whatever or your next position or tenure or whatever it is I think that there I think it can not always but can be a bit corrupting to the soul because I think as you say you're right they're popularity contests but fundamentally and crucially they're popularity contests that don't admit that they're popularity contests so there's this this sort of deception inherent in it where that where they're saying they're about one thing but they're actually about another and that's skewing behavior and skewing incentives so yeah i think you're right <laughs> yeah it's uh, it's interesting because i was um, we're we're also uh, today going to be having uh, the philosopher Susan Nyman on the podcast and uh, so i was reading over like some stuff in anticipation of that conversation and uh, I was reading over Jean-Jacques Rousseau's um, great book Emile and he he says it's it's all basically about how do you raise like an enlightened kid like what do you do and he very much has the same sort of view that you were just saying before about like character building and everything he says as much as possible you want to you want to you want to impress upon Emil this sort of theoretical kid um, you that his actions have real consequences in the world, and that he has to because he says there's a, a natural tendency within uh, within human beings, but you see it in kids to always want to like blame other people for everything that's wrong with them. So he said he has these like details that anybody who's a parent, you read this and you're like, oh my god, he's so fucking right. Like where he says, you know, a kid will like trip over something over a toy that's been left on the floor, and if there's somebody standing there, they'll immediately yell at them, right? Yell at their mother, or yell at like like you did this, right? Like somehow, like or or if they're feeling sick or hungry or uncomfortable, they'll take it out on you know, their mom or their sister or brother or father or something like that. But, so there's, he says there's this natural tendency within us to, uh, to blame, to externalize. Like, and so as much as possible, he said he wants the kid to, uh, to sort of play in the woods and climb trees and things like that. And that way, when he, like, if he falls from a tree and it hurts, he's going to realize like that that's there's nobody's to blame for that. Like I wasn't being careful. And so I, I fell. And so I have to like, what are you going to kick the tree? Like, like you, you as much as possible, get him to realize that if he's like, um, throwing, he's, he said, if the kid's throwing stones at the windows of the house and, uh, breaks a window and in winter, like have him sleep in that room that night and see how cold it is with like a broken window. And so that he realizes why the windows are there, right? The kid wants to go outside uh, crazy underdressed in the middle of the winter. Don't get into a big fight with them. Let them go outside and get really, really cold. And then they'll realize that, you know, winter clothes are there for a reason. <laughs> like it's just, it's all these, uh, but, it, but it's all towards trying to build uh, a kind of person that takes responsibility for their actions rather than constantly just trying to manipulate people around them. 
and trying to by crying or by like guilt trips or trying to uh, you know what I mean like like thinking that you can solve all of your problems by uh, manipulating other people into solving them for you yeah yeah, yeah. And I, I, th- I mean that that all sounds absolutely right to me and I, but I think that I think the flip side of that is absolutely that is teaching people responsibility but it's also giving them something it's giving them agency so yes when you take responsibility for the things around you you also become a conscious actor in the world you also uh, sort of have it you you have your own agency you cease to be helpless that doesn't mean that you have to believe that you're in control of absolutely everything around you but it's uh to me, it seems like a really psychological thing to accept your own agency, to accept that your actions have consequences and that you can choose between different types of actions and learning to live with the consequences of that without blaming other people. I, I, think, it, I think it's really valuable. I think it promotes psychological good health, probably, um, partly because it sort of makes you feel like you're not helpless and partly because it's just in line with reality it's just it it is because if you don't have that attitude then sooner or later you are going to bump up against reality yeah because actions do have consequences choices do have consequences um and you're going to come see you know one way or another you're always going to come up against that in the real world at some point but we all have that tendency we all have that tendency to look around for somebody to blame a little bit and I used to have a kind of funny shorthand for that actually with my ex-husband when um because we shared the both shared that tendency where you'd have a bad day and you'd come home from work and then burn the supper and uh, and then start having a go at each other or whatever and we used to short circuit that once we caught ourselves doing it and, and look at the other one and say it's somehow my fault you know that you had a bad day at the office and you burnt the supper and we'd both burst out laughing because that that's that's the thing that's the underlying there is that you're saying this this thing that's nothing to do with you is somehow your fault and it's just funny you know once you can see it it becomes you're in on the joke and it just becomes really absurd yeah, no, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. The uh, a friend of mine basically gave up on men in her early 40s. Uh, she'd been in relationships pretty much back to back since she was 12. <laughs> and uh, she just, they, they were all kind of bad. And, uh, and so she was, she was single for, I think it was like, like eight years. And then she met a guy, fell madly in love, and they've been very happily married for a long time now. Um, but, uh, but anyway, she, she told me that being single was, was very eye-opening because she, she didn't even realize that because she'd always been in a relationship, if she had, uh, if she woke up in a bad mood, she would immediately, uh, you know, sort of turn over to the guy lying next to her and say like, you know, I'm in a bad mood because you did X, Y, Z or you failed to do ABC, right? And then likewise, if she was in a good mood, she would turn over and be like, I'm in a good mood because you did ABC and you refrained from doing X, Y, Z. And so um, she, she was sort of giving away, like you said, like her agency, but she didn't realize she was doing it. And so when she was single, she would, um, she realized suddenly she would wake up in a bad mood and there was nobody to blame it on. And sometimes she'd wake up in a wonderful mood and there was nobody to 
sort of give it. And she, so she started sort of, she said, taking responsibility for her own emotions much more and realizing that, um, you know, I don't, I, my joy and my sadness are not, you know, totally dependent on somebody else, on some outside power that she started to see emotions as being more like weather. You, know, you wake up some days, it's a sunny day. Some days it's cloudy and, you know, whatever, you bring an umbrella. Like, you you, you sort of deal with the day that you have, uh, which is, yeah, I mean, that's like a very, um, that's a lesson I think a lot of people never learn. Right? It's, yeah, it's sad. I mean, I, I actually, I knew this one, as one friend uh, a while back who, she was the, the only the only girl in a family filled of four boys and she was the youngest and she was just like the apple of, you know, her father's eye, her mother's eye, her brother, they all just treated her like this precious princess. And you know, that, that there's a lot of great things about that. Uh, But the downside is that um, when I met her, she was, you know, she was in her forties and she basically she had never learned how to take care of herself in any way. She always had like all these big brothers and the parents and, but now her parents were aging and her brothers all had kids of their own and had, you know, were getting up there and had other stuff. They had other responsibilities and they couldn't just come and rescue her all the time. And she was one of the most helpless people I've, I've ever met. And it was, you can see that it was because she basically was always, she could always just sort of smile and be cute and get people to, to do stuff for her. <laughs> it's, it's amazing to me. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You must have known people like this, right? Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. I mean, it just, it sounds like the sort of thing that, uh, as you say, is going to come back to bite you later on isn't it when uh, because I don't think I think there must be I mean maybe if you're you know a, a gen, an actual princess in a royal family or something like that um you, you it never comes back to bite you but other than that I can't think of a situation in which you're going to sail through life with there are always other people there breaking your fall and I'm not even sure I would choose it if it were offered to me yeah well you have you 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 have kind of like um to some extent you have like the hot chick in your novel Lucian, right? He's sort of like this super swaggering, like hot charismatic guy. And there's that wonderful scene at the end when he's just you know, gotten out of prison. <laughs> and he, he realizes he's, he's older now and you can't like, you, know, you can't be like hitting on, young girls like in a bus <laughs> that is like one of the most hilarious scenes like it's just i mean that's it seems to me that people who've been you know riding on charisma and charm completely all of them have a reckoning like that at some point where they just you know it, it's just not working anymore <laughs> like uh, have you have you sort of had any offers or of, of turning this into a screenplay? Um, I 
I don't think any firm offers. A while back, I think there was some muttering about optioning it, but I don't think anyone ever did. Um, and I think it's only a tiny fraction of books that, that get optioned actually get get the movies made. So um, so no, it's open. Any takers, anyone wants to option it for film, um, speak to my agent. <laughs> it, just, it seems like it would, it would make such a good um, movie or, or like a Netflix... Netflix, you know, show or something like that, because it it does have these these really really interesting characters, right? That are and it would look like I can imagine it would look really good in terms of like all the places, like going to Corfu, like hanging out in these big houses, and then going to CERN. In that that would be so much fun, <laughs> you know, that all that whole scene and then the party scene just those party scenes would be like with Lucian DJing and stuff like that. Those would be the guy with the spider web. Tattoos. <laughs> like, I, I can picture all of it being like very uh, pretty to look at, you know, in the scenes like them in the park getting found by a dog walker in the morning, all drugged out and stuff. It just, it would look, do you know what I mean? Like it's very um, uh, cinematic and it's uh it's descriptions, right? Because I mean, some novels are very, they're just really cerebral. It's like people just sitting in an apartment talking and it's hard to put that onto a screen. <laughs> you know, with, uh, but this is not, uh, this is not like that. But um, there's uh, one other, one other passage just to give our, our listeners a little more of a flavor of what this novel is like. Uh, one of the things that <laughs> this novel has in it is some of the most epic friend fights um, that I've I think I've I've read in any novel. Like you see some action movies, you say, well, that has like some of the best fight scenes ever. Like you know, when he kicks him in the face with that round that Matrix move when she you know, Trinity. This has like some really epic uh, arguments, and this is one of them. It's um, so Evis uh, is saying to Benedict, uh, "Work's going great." Done a few big trades this year. Looking forward to a big bonus. Uh, I've been hearing about those city bonuses, chirped Lydia. Lydia is Benedict's uh, wife. Um, arriving back at the table with the boys. It's a bit obscene, isn't it? The way they pay millions to you lot just for shuffling money around when there are people starving in the world. Just don't become one of those awful people who are obsessed with money and status, Eva. Whatever you do. There's more to life than making money. Eva couldn't believe what she was hearing. She saw Benedict looked from her to his wife and back again and opened his mouth to say something placatory, but she didn't wait for him to speak. Well, Lydia, some of us have to work for a living, and I work bloody hard for mine. It was Lydia's turn to bridle. Yes, well, raising kids is hard work too. It doesn't come with a big bonus, but then not everything that counts can be counted. You know who said that? Albert Einstein. For fuck's sake, Eva blurted out, more forcefully than she'd intended, causing several parents at the surrounding tables... Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, causing several of the surrounding tables to glare at her. Those of us who didn't grow up with our own pet pony don't have the luxury of swanning through life, pretending that money doesn't matter. It does bloody matter. It dictates where you live, what education you get whether your cancer is diagnosed before it's the size of a walrus and whether you get a thrombosis flying economy. Yes, there are things that money can't buy, 
but I'd still rather cry about them in the back of a Mercedes than on a bicycle. <laughs> it's, just, I mean, it's just such an epic argument. I mean, is this, is this once again, I guess I, I got to ask, is this just like purely fantastic imagination or a view? Because I've witnessed arguments exactly like this. Uh, so what yeah, no, I think I think I'm gonna say yeah no that was that was an imaginary one that wasn't that one that I specifically had um, but it was sort of I suppose it was uh, something that I've seen playing out in the world around me and I think that but and again you know I'm not being didactic here when I write this scene I think they've both got really good points. Yeah. Um, so it's a, so it's just in some ways you know some of those sorts of arguments I wrote them as a way of sort of just playing with my own thinking around it I'm not setting one character up to be slapped down hard by the other character who's 100% right or anything like that you know these these are real real conflicts real tensions between people and and in the world so it was quite and I and you know and these were these were the sorts of arguments that were playing out in the world around us and the sorts of arguments even that that we were having within ourselves you know do we sell out do we not sell out and what what's selling out anyway when we took decisions about our careers and things like that so yeah I mean it was imaginary but it felt like it applied to you know the lives of people around me and um yeah and it's just fun it's just fun to dramatize those sorts of quite theoretical arguments uh, and in in that way in people's lives I guess yeah, it's it's just it's really kind of one of the themes of the novel, which I I liked a lot, is the whole theme of kind of class, right, and how people's various class backgrounds and the way in which they signal to each other, you know, what their background is and what they conceal and what they consider to be important, and right. So, you know, Benedict's parents are you know so wealthy that they can afford to really kind of not to act like money doesn't matter. <laughs> and then like, you know, it, it's just, it's very, it's very good in that respect. And then you see kind of what happens to characters who, who behave as if money doesn't matter, uh, but actually don't, uh, you know, like a, Sylvie, like don't actually have any money. <laughs> behind them. And they they suddenly realize that money really does matter a great deal, and that uh, you know not having it can very quickly put you into some some desperate situations, right? So the the whole kind of the starving artist, you know, the myth of the starving artist and stuff like that. I mean, that it seems to me that the people I don't know if you've seen this, but the people I know who told me they wanted to be writers when we were let's say like teenagers. Uh, most of them, um, actually, I, I can't really think of an exception. They ended up uh, just doing like really soul-crushing jobs, like writing copy for an advertising agency, or um, I know a couple of people who've gone into the whole ghostwriting scene, mm-hmm. uh, which is just—I mean, I guess you you probably are aware of how extensive that is now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know people do it. It's just wild. Like I, I could not like the, the people tell me like, you know, I think everybody probably knew that. Okay, famous people, you know, don't always write their own autobiographies. They they hire somebody to help them out. 
but it's got to the point now where a friend of mine, her son got a job, a high, uh, high powered job at like Google. And, you know, but he, he's not even like upper management. He was at a, but he was assigned somebody who would write his emails. Wow. Yeah. Because they, they think every email that you send, you know, from our organization reflects on us. And so we want it to be of the utmost quality, you know, really nicely, nicely done perfectly. And so he will like tell somebody, okay, this is what I want to say. And then they'll write it perfectly. So there's like, there's ghostwriters for fucking emails now. Like for speeches, obviously, any any time you hear like a director general or a CEO give a speech, somebody wrote it. And uh, but anyway, it seems like the people that um, said they wanted to be writers ended up doing um, these sorts of things. And the people who've been successful are people like you who uh, sort of went into it after having a previous career and a bunch of other stuff i'm wondering do you think there's i don't know what would be your guess as to why that is so often the case that people who come into it from something else are more successful oh, i think there's there's a couple of reasons that i can think of the first is as i say i am now really glad that i didn't try and do something peripherally related to writing as a career um because I think because exactly that you know that's the first time I've heard of ghostwriters for emails um specifically but yeah there is a lot you can end up doing a lot of stuff so writing anything to do with um the arts is in some ways well it's always competitive right so in some ways it's high status but it's not necessarily highly paid but because there's a sort of romanticism about it there are lots of people wanting to do it and as a result those jobs get quite badly paid so I think well I think the best thing that you can have as a writer is time like it really really takes time and time to yourself to write a novel like a novel is a big big undertaking and quite often you're going to have to write one that doesn't get published before you know or two or three that don't get published even you know I, know I do know plenty of people in that situation before you do get something published and the whole thing is so uncertain so if you're in a very poorly paid job that in and of itself you know, unless you have a trust fund or some family money or a supportive partner, that in and of itself is going to lower your chances of success. Um, and the second is that it's, you know, well, you risk, of, you risk not having any other life experience. So we talked about writers writing about writers writing. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> how much of that stuff is out there and how much of a cliche that uh, that, that has become. Um, and you're not, you're going to struggle to differentiate yourself from all the rest of the writers writing about writing if you don't have any other experience that you can throw into the mix that you can write about. So while we don't, while I will, as I say, be swearing to my dying day that I, <laughs> I don't write autobiography, at the same time, you are, you're always going to be drawing from your own life. You're always going to be writing from your own experiences. Um, so you need to do some living. And I saw a lovely little thing that somebody sent me the other day about if, if you're not going to spend the time writing, because like all writers, I have a constant battle between writing and procrastinating. Um, 
and spent a lot of time procrastinating, staring in space, all of those sorts of things. But if you're not doing something, if you're not doing any good writing, then at least go out and do something that's worth writing about. Well, that's hard in this weird year, but nevertheless, it, it really resonated with me because you can't, yeah, writing is something you can't do in, in a vacuum. Well, for me, at least, there probably are some, are some people who can, but for me, at least, I have to do quite a lot of living before I have enough to say to make it worth writing about. Mm-hmm. No, that makes that makes perfect perfect sense. I mean, I think you know the the Roman the Roman Republic, their convention where before a man could go into politics, they first had to go and have like some, a bunch of military exploits and travel and do all these these things for a number of years before they could go into politics uh, was. You know, it was, it was predicated on the idea to some extent that you have to uh, actually know a bunch of things about the world before you can govern it or, you know, much less write about it. I mean, writing was something that used to be done by people when they retired from from active life, you know, at some point in their 50s or 60s, you know, retired generals and stuff like that would would write a lot after they had had all of this experience, right? And trying to reflect on it and learn from it. But no, that, that makes a great deal of sense. I mean, you are a ultra marathoner. Well, right? I, I hesitate to call myself that. I mean, you have, I, but you run marathons, don't you? And, and ultra marathons, don't you? Uh, well, I don't run marathons. Um, I've never run a, a marathon per se. I like to, so yeah, okay. <laughs> so we, yeah, we get into some fine distinctions here. I've, I've run one ultra marathon or two on consecutive days, depending on how you look at it. Um, so yeah, I'm, I, I'm a. So an, an ultra marathon is, is how many miles? Well, an ultra marathon is, uh, it depends on whose definition you take. Either it's anything longer than a marathon. A marathon is 26.2 miles. So it's anything longer than that. Or some people say it's got to be a minimum of 30 miles to call it an ultra marathon. So really kind of anything upwards from about 50 kilometers is an ultra marathon. So I've done uh, one 100 kilometer ultra marathon, which I did 50 kilometers a day over two days. Um, uh, so I don't know whether, so, you know, I don't think that's necessarily enough to call myself a full-on ultramarathon in the ultramarathon world, because, you know, all these worlds have, <laughs> so I, I would hesitate to um, to build myself like that. I did have a few more plans for this year, actually, but unfortunately they all, they all got cancelled, well, or postponed, my big ones postponed to next year, so I'm hoping to do a, a really big 250 kilometer one in Jordan next year, but we'll have to we'll have to see what happens with all the whole kind of travel and coronavirus situation and all of that sort of thing. But yeah, I think running and writing have a lot of synergies, and a lot of writers are either walkers or runners, um, and they do different things. So I think walking really feeds the writing. I think most novelists walk and there's something about bilateral movement that helps the brain processing. I think there's actually some data out there on that now. Um, and for, so for me, that's walking. Walking really feeds the writing. Running doesn't really in that I don't come back from a run with like a chapter that my mind has fleshed out while I'm doing it, but it comes from the same, the same place as writing. Um, you, it requires the same sort of or, or running distance running running doing longer runs comes it requires the same sort of discipline as novel writing because 
novels take a very long time to write and they require you to have quite a high tolerance for discomfort. So the thing about, I think, I think one of the things about being human, that specifically about being human that differentiates us from other animals, although by the way, I'm vegan and I'm not a person who spends their time particularly differentiating humans from other types of animals and thinking of us as being very separate from the, the animal kingdom, I really don't. But there is something specific to being human that means that we, very few of us are able to sit still comfortably for long periods. Like if you watch a lion, you know, it'll eat a big dinner and then it'll just sit around and it'll be fine doing that. Humans mostly aren't like that. So writing requires you to sort of sit on your own for long periods. And what I find and what a lot of writers find is that there's a period of, of real discomfort at the start of that. You have to sink through a layer of kind of boredom and discomfort and being present with your mind and your mind can really feel like a bucket of eels sloshing around when you're just sitting there um, before you're able to start writing. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of people try and then don't succeed to write because it's extremely uncomfortable just sitting there with your own own mind a lot of the time before the actual work starts and you have to go through that each time you sit down to write. Um, and running's the same, right? You know, there is there is quite a high level of discomfort involved in running, but also the rewards are really high in both writing and running. So you get flow, you know, you get absorbed into an activity where you're sort of where you're not noticing that your mind is like a bucket of eels sloshing around. <laughs> I love that image, by the way. I'm totally going to use that. I love that. A bucket of eels. <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean... Yeah, because I remember there's a friend of mine, Stephen Marsh, who's written a lot of, he's written novels, he's written short stories, he's written lots of different kinds of nonfiction, all different genres. And he's, he once uh, likened, he said, you know, to write a novel, it's, it's like long distance running. You know, it's you know, other forms of writing. It's like you know, taking a nice brisk walk or maybe a sprint. But to do like a, a long work like that, you need to have the tenacity and the kind of discipline and to be able to, that it takes to be a, a long distance runner. Like you have to, you can't just rely on flashes of talent and insight. You have to, <laughs> you have to really kind of buckle down and, it's this long process, but I, I don't know. You have to really keep showing up. I think that's the key thing to both of them because bear in mind, right, I didn't just get up one day and run 50 kilometers. I, I trained for that really long period. And the same with writing, you know, you have to keep showing up and you have to often have to keep showing up when you really don't feel like it and tolerating the discomfort for both. Yeah. I Do you think, I mean, I'm just sort of, do you think we may see like in your next novel, a runner or, or running oh, culture ask, well, you never know what's going to go in and go out but yeah I, okay now I'm gonna have now you've said that I'm gonna have to take it out right because I'm feeling too comfortable <laughs> because yes there is there is one in there but um, <laughs> um yeah. but now I'm feeling like it's too obvious and I shouldn't write about it but it no, is it's not too obvious it's just it's, just it's one of those things you don't see you know, once again, like like Eva, right? It's one of those things that you just don't see very often in um, in stories. Is the experience of which is amazing because it's one of the things that uh, is most distinctive about the human species. We are um, some of the best 
long distance runners on planet earth. Like we're really, really good at it. Like we're better. We can outrun uh, wolves. We can outrun all sorts of things. Like we're, um, we're very good at it. So the experience of running is, is one of those, you know, things that actually is distinctively human. And um, yeah, it'd be interesting like just to see like, you know, that kind of experience and that, that sort of world because it really is like one of those fascinating, fascinating subcultures. Like I got into it for a little while. Actually, actually, I've I've had a thought. Although I, I I've sort of toyed with the idea of putting an ultramarathon in my current novel. I don't know whether I'm just shoehorning it in because I want to write about it. And I th- but I've also sort of considered and, and partly written a proposal to write a non-fiction book on ultramarathons and the people who run them. Um, because you know what I've talked about, and you said, "Oh, you know, you ran an ultramarathon. Wow!" And and I'm I'm like nobody. I'm a baby in terms of, the, of of what people can do. So people are like, "Oh my God!" You know, you ran a hundred k in a weekend. That's amazing. Um, well, I've got a friend in my running club. Shout out to vegan runners and um, my friend Christian Malidi, who'll be doing two hundred sixty eight miles on the Winter Spine in the UK in a couple of weeks' time. Um, so, you know, the sky's the limit with this stuff. Yeah, people look at it and go, wow, that's crazy. And you're like, well, no, you should, you should see what people are doing out there. It's really, you know, there are people out there testing themselves to the absolute limits. And it's fascinating. And it's fascinating kind of in terms of the science and the biology of the thing, if you're interested in that sort of thing, but also the psychology of how we get ourselves to do hard things and how we can sort of override the messages that our bodies giving us and why we'd want to do that so I think that I mean there are some really good ultramarathon books out there born to run but sorry born to run yeah, being yeah really that's the one I, that's the one I read and it was like I just I learned so much from that book yeah like, so I read yeah I read that earlier on this year actually so and and slightly unusually for ultramarathon books it's written by a really good writer yeah <laughs> so there are there are a few sort of yeah less good ones, but um but yes, yeah, so I'm toying with the idea of writing a whole book on that and about the people who do it and their stories because there's there's a lot of interesting kind of stories out there of, of why people do such crazy things. Yeah, well, it is it is you know it's, it's the same reason why people love like you know watching Quentin Tarantino, Pulp Fiction or something like that. It's because you there's this subculture that's all around you and it it's so kind of freaky and foreign like and people just love to hear stories about um humans that are at like the margins of what is possible or permissible <laughs> and are just like but it's, it's real but it's uh it's really kind of foreign to their experience and that's um i mean i think that's ultimately like why um, at its best, you know, why people read, you know, period, but especially why people read novels is just to, or even probably even write them is to, you want to uh, escape yourself. Like you want to be, I want to see what it's like to be other people. I want to put on somebody else's consciousness and understand how they see the world. And, and that feels, you know, I don't know. It's it, entertaining. It's, it's just, it's, fun to have a kind of a break from being yourself right which is what happens when you really get into like a, a fun novel like invincible some <laughs> invincible summer you just sort of 
he gets it. It's like a little kid playing, you know, playing dress up. He's like, oh, I'm going to be Benedict now. I'm going to be Lucid. I'm going to be Sylvie. I'm going to be Eva. Right? It's, uh, anyway, I, I just think that would be, I would love to know what, <laughs> what that kind of ultra marathon subculture is, feels like, you know, to be in that, that world. But anyway, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And, um, uh, and for, you know, I know you've been feeling a little bit, under the weather. So thank you. See, this is uh, running. It's given you character. You muscle through, uh, <laughs> you muscle through discomfort. <laughs> so do you have any uh, sort of parting words for our, for our listeners about, um, you know, what's, what is coming next, what they can expect from you in the future? No pressure. <laughs> no pressure, no pressure cause I, yeah I'm not a I'm not a novel a year kind of person so I don't um yeah I'm not I'm not banging them out at a rate of knots or anything like that but yeah you know I am I'm I'm near to uh, you know hopefully within vague spitting distance of finishing another novel um, I'm still toying with the idea of writing this non-fiction ultramarathon books sort of centered around the stories of people who are who are doing some of that sort of crazy stuff out there and um you know any aspiring writers can always sign up to one of my online writing courses now that I'm doing a bit of that online what with the coronavirus so yeah that's that's me um thanks so much awesome okay well we'll put we'll put a link to your classes on our website Okay, great. Well, I'll be yeah. walking over to you a little bit later on today then. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. Well, have a wonderful day. And uh, definitely you're going to have to come back on the podcast uh, when your next book is is out. Brilliant. Love to. <laughs> All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.